So to the other parties, please explain why you don't think Canadians should have the choice, why you don't think that this is a pivotal moment. Because I'm focused on our real plan. I'm focused on the path forward with Canadians. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and that, of course, is the voice of Justin Trudeau. And as expected, he revealed the worst-kept secret in Canada yesterday, paid a visit to the Governor General, setting in motion a federal election in Canada. Voting day is Monday, September 20th. It is the first full day today of the election campaign and we've assembled a great BC election panel for you to kick off today's show. Three candidates, three parties, all seeking a seat in the House of Commons in Ottawa from British Columbia. And I'm pleased to welcome all of them this morning. On the line, Nikki McDonald. She is the Liberal candidate in Victoria. Nikki, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm really glad to be here. Appreciate it a lot. Also on the line, Dan Albus, Member of Parliament for Central Okanagan, Similkameen Nicola, and he's seeking re-election there. Dan, thanks for coming on again. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Also on the line, Don Davies, Member of Parliament for Vancouver Kingsway, and he's seeking re-election there for the NDP. Don, thank you for being here. Great to be with you, Mike. All right, it's great to have all three of you here, and I'm very grateful to all of you. Nikki McDonald, let me go to you first. And we heard the comment from the Prime Minister there right off the top of the show, challenging his opponents. Why not have an election right now? Trudeau kind of trying to turn it around. Why would you say an election in this country is necessary right now during a pandemic? We've got wildfires burning here in B.C. What is the justification for this today? Well, I hear you. First of all, um, Mike, you know, there's two things. I've been knocking doors now since uh, Bonnie Henry said it was okay. And what I'm hearing from people is simple. They want the uh, climate action is number one in their minds. And what Trudeau is saying, we need to urgent, bold action. We need to continue with our climate action plan, but even go further than that. And we need a strong mandate to do that. The second reason is because, uh, you know, the ca- Canadians have a right, have a net need to be part of the discussion, the dialogue on what our recovery looks like. As we move into our recovery, Canadians want to be able to say this is what's important to us. For example, what I hear a lot about is small business. And small business really appreciated the support they had during the pandemic. We're now moving into a recovery stage Let's talk to small business about what they need. Okay, I want to try and give everyone equal time here this morning. Let me go to Dan Albus from the Conservatives. Dan, your thoughts? Yeah, well, Mike, let's just start out with Logan Lake is in my riding. Uh, The community of Merritt is uh, under evacuation alert right now. Uh, Every valley in my riding has uh, forest fires, and it is displacing people. So first, I just want to say thank you to all the first responders uh, they're working on the fires and protecting people and property. And thank you to all the people that have, are opening their homes, uh, their properties to evacuees. That's incredibly important. This is an incredibly selfish move by uh, Justin Trudeau to put his own self forward. No one wants this election. No one needed this election. Uh, but yet he's decided with growing COVID numbers and all these other things that have happened. And just look at the mess that's in, in Afghanistan and how we've let those people down. This is an incredibly selfish move. Now, look, people may not want an election, but they do want good governance and leadership. And Aaron O'Toole is going to be going out there, uh, speaking to people about Canada's recovery plan. So these are the the things that we're going to be talking about, how we can help people now support them and 
help them to recover so that we we have okay. a stronger country. But you know what? This was incredibly selfish, and I really condemn the prime minister for putting us in a needless election. Okay, Nikki, I'll give you an opportunity to respond to that in a sec here a little bit. Let me go to Don Davies first now for the NDP. Don, your thoughts? Well, look, I agree that, that nobody wants or needs a snap summer election right now except for Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. Uh, he asks why we should have an election now. Well, I think it's, it's a number of reasons. We're without doubt firmly in the dangerous fourth wave of COVID-19. Uh, the climate crisis is urgent, as has been pointed out. We have wildfires, drought that desperately needs our, our attention. There are serious economic issues to deal with. Mike, millions of Canadians are suffering. They're worried about their jobs. They can't find affordable housing. Uh, as Dan pointed out, we have a crisis in Afghanistan. And finally, Trudeau has willing partners in Parliament to get things done. He doesn't need a mandate. He has a mandate. Right. And we should be in Parliament right now doing our job for Canadians. But, you know, we're here now. And, uh, you know, Jagmeet Singh and the New Democrats, we fought hard in Parliament for the last 22 months for Canadians. And, and we think we have a great platform to improve life for Canadians. And we want to we want to okay. look forward to building a recovery that works for all of us, not not just those at the top. So, okay. so here we are. OK, let me go back to Nikki McDonald for the Liberals and Nikki kind of two against one here on, on the panel so far, kind of as expected with this election call by the prime minister. But you heard your opponents there make the case that. The, the election is unnecessary. You heard Don Davies say that Parliament was functioning. Uh, you say that there are bigger priorities. Could you expand on that? Like, why is an election necessary right now, and what should be the top priority right now? Sure. I think one of the key ones we saw come out recently was the mandatory vaccine for federal public servants and for those who are on air and train. The Liberals have made it clear that's a priority uh, for them. But, and, in fact, we're also seeing provinces now look at that as an important instrument, important tool to address uh, where we're at with the pandemic and to give people that reassurance that it's safe to travel, it's safe to work, it's safe to go in public spaces. So that's just one example of why we need uh, a strong uh, majority government in the House of Commons to get these kind of, of important uh, legislation through. Okay, Dan Albus, what do you say to that vaccine issue, which we'll be covering uh, more thoroughly on the show today as well? Mandatory yeah. vaccines announced by the federal government for federal employees and crown corporations. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so a couple things. Nikki first just is the first one to say it. She's obviously more honest than the prime minister. She said majority. That's what this is about. This is not about whether or not uh, the country needs an election uh, or that there's important things to debate. This is about the prime minister deciding that he wants to no longer face the scrutiny that he's had. Look, I've seen the work done has done uh, on the health committee uh, and the amount of information we've been able to pull out. And, and, and let's be mindful that this government is actually taking the House of Commons to court to try and stop us from getting more information. He doesn't like the scrutiny. Now, when it comes to being uh, vaccinations, look, I'm double vaccinated. So is my leader. We encourage everyone to go and get vaccinated. Now, uh, you know, he's Justin Trudeau is just saying that public servants should be vaccinated uh, right now, but he hasn't taken action on it. All he's done is he's told the Privy Council clerk to look at it. You know, they haven't even said what will happen if a public servant refuses. Look, Aaron okay. O'Toole said very clearly, we will make uh, working in the public service safe. We have rapid tests. Look, the, the federal government has bought millions of these things. Mike, you know that and they've been in warehouses. They haven't been deployed. This would allow so that if someone was working in the public sector every day that okay. they would have to take a rapid test. 
That's how we ensure safety is by making sure that we, we bring people together. We say what's practical. We have these things available. And you know what? Justin Trudeau is just saying things, and it's all smoke and mirrors. He says, okay, let me go. I'm going to do this. He doesn't, he doesn't actually show how he's going to make it work. Okay, Don Davies for the NDP, your thoughts. Well, I, I, I can be very short and direct on this point. Nikki's sure. example is, is actually one that, that completely blows up the Liberal argument for an election. Because the, on the same day that Prime Minister Trudeau announced that they were going to have mandatory vaccinations in the federal civil service, I came out uh, as the NDP health critic and said, we agree with that policy, 100%. Mm. Right. So we could be in Parliament right now with, uh, with uh, Liberal and, and New Democrats voting in favour. That is a majority. So, so you see, this is a complete specious, vacuous and self-serving argument on the Liberals. They keep desperately trying to come up with some reasons to justify an election, but they just can't because, as Dan just said, every Canadian knows this. There's only one reason for this election. Justin Trudeau is putting his partisan interests as a, and trying to get a liberal majority over the interests of Canadians with an unnecessary election when there are far more pressing examples. Look, every government presses examples, Mike. We all know that. Let, let's be honest. But we're not always in the middle of a, a dangerous global pandemic with serious economic climate okay. crisis and, and, uh, in, um, and, and uh, you know, economic and health issues. That's where we are right now. But so Canadians will have a choice to, to make, and, and uh, I'm confident that Canadians can, can see exactly what's happening here. This election is not about the next week, the next month, or even the next year. It's about the next four years. It's about who will deliver the economic recovery Canada needs. Okay, that's uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole with his reaction to the calling of the federal election. September 20th is voting day. We've got our all-candidates panel going. Dan Albus from the Conservatives, Don Davies from the NDP, uh, Nikki McDonald from the Liberals. Nikki, let's talk about some of the issues in this campaign. You mentioned climate change. What should be the priority there? Well, you thank Mike. And, you know, my background's been in ocean climate research for the past decade and a half. And the priority is that we have to get a collaboration going across this country, working together to really address climate change. No one government, no one person is going to make the difference. It's about collaboration. And Trudeau's really shown his ability to do that. During this pandemic, we had over 33 federal, provincial and territorial ministers meetings and first ministers meetings. And prior to 2015, under the Harper government, the federal and provincial and territorial leaders never met. So collaboration is a key part of addressing climate change. Okay, Dan Albus for the Conservatives, what do you say to that? Well, I, I would say that collaboration is important. And unfortunately, under this, uh, this liberal government, uh, provinces have been punching bags, not partners. Look, Justin Trudeau has changed Canada's uh, climate targets uh, twice. He's raised the carbon tax. Remember in 2019? Oh, no, we will not go over $50 a ton. Uh, and you know what? They say now it's going to be $170 uh, a ton. And they've upped their, their targets again without saying how they're going to do it. This is with zero collaboration. Nikki said that the Harper government didn't collaborate with provinces. Well, guess which targets the J- Justin Trudeau took to Paris? The, the, the targets that were negotiated with the provinces. And there has been no similar process since then so you know what climate change is an all hands on deck approach that's why our plan proposes some new ideas low carbon savings plans uh, where we actually help people to to be able to insulate their homes or change their behaviors 
but we'll work with provinces. Right now, you have Justin Trudeau saying, yes, we'll let New Brunswick do something, but no, we won't let Saskatchewan do the same thing. That's divisive. That's not how you build a better response to climate change. Okay, we've heard from Justin Trudeau. We've heard from the conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole. Let's quickly listen to a clip here of federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. We are the only party saying very clearly there is a third option, which is to make the ultra-rich pay their fair share. Companies like Amazon, which make record profits in this pandemic, do pay virtually no taxes in Canada. We can stop that. We can make sure they pay their fair share and invest that back in people. Okay, uh, Don Davies is the NDP MP in Vancouver Kingsway running for re-election. Don, can you comment on that tax on the super rich? How would that, how would that pay for anything other than just a, a few days of governing in this country? Well, it would pay for a lot more than that, Mike. I mean, we've done the work on this with the parliamentary budget officer and, you know, our plans to, uh, to levy a, a 1% tax on, on wealth over, uh, over $10 million and to, uh, to even today, as, as our leader Jagmeet Singh said, to, to go after those, those corporations that made $78 billion in extra profits over the course of the pandemic, uh, who took public money and uh, didn't need it to pay that back misusing that money these are the kinds of of policies that we need because we're going to have to we we don't want working people in this country to pay for this pandemic we want we want the the wealthy and the largest corporations to pay their fair share and this has been uh, a problem that has been allowed to persist mike for decades under successive conservative and liberal governments who continue to put the interests of the wealthy and largest corporations over the interests of average canadians and uh, it's time to address that in in our view I just want to say a quick thing about yeah. the, the about climate change, Mike, because uh, sure. they, they talked about it. Look, Canada is the only, um, uh, the Liberals have never hit a single climate change target in their history, and Canada is the only G7 country whose carbon emissions have risen over the last, uh, since the Paris Accords have, have been signed. And uh, this is the problem with Justin Trudeau is at election time, he says the right things. He talks, talks uh, like he's progressive, but he does not deliver. Okay, and, we just and that's something that we have to uh, we have to remind Canadians. Running out of time, I'll give each of you thirty seconds to wrap up here. Uh, Nikki McDonald, we'll go to you first. What would you like to say? Thirty seconds. Well, I just think that the Liberals, especially on climate change, and this is one area unlike my colleagues that I know well because I've been studying it for more than a decade. And Trudeau has done a lot on climate change, put $50 billion behind a bold climate action plan, and that's why I'm running as a Liberal. Okay, Diane Albus for the Conservatives. you got 30 seconds, too. Thanks so much. Aaron O'Toole will help your family and help your community to get back on track. Canada's recovery plan will help secure our jobs, uh, a million jobs that we need to recover from loss during the pandemic. We're going to secure accountability by uh, putting in anti-corruption laws so we can clean up Ottawa. We'll also know that securing mental health and, and funding a new mental health strategy uh, will help us okay. to get out of the pandemic. And lastly, I just say we need to build up the country to make sure this pandemic can never happen again. And Don. so we'll do that by, by uh, you know, putting in place the ability to produce PPE and other things like vaccines here. Don Davies for the NDP. 30 seconds, Don. Well, Jagmeet Singh, the New Democrats, we, we fight for, for people. And we have one priority in this election, and that's to make life better for people. Uh, we will fight to make sure our economic recovery is strong, that we make the transition to a sustainable economy, that uh, it's not done on the backs of working families. And it's, you know, we have great opportunities in front of us, Mike. We can, we can strengthen Canada 
We can make it a fairer country. We can we can transition to a, a strong, sustainable Thank economy you. in the 21st century. All right. Welcome back to the show. And let's talk about the great mandatory vaccination debate in Canada now. This one has cranked up big time now. Last week, Justin Trudeau's federal liberal government announcing mandatory COVID vaccinations for all federal government employees, including crown corporations doesn't end there the government also saying they will require mandatory vaccinations in federally regulated sectors like airlines railways also possibly banking broadcasting telecommunications wow this is a major major uh, move here by the federal government controversial the federal conservative party has come out against it now all right let's discuss we got both sides of it for you now dr amir adaran on the line professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Dr. Adaran, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. You bet. Appreciate it. Brian Lilly, also on the line, political columnist for the Toronto Sun. Hey, Brian. Good to speak to both of you again. Okay, gentlemen, thank you for both of you for being here. Uh, Amir Adaran, let me go to you first. You've been calling for this for a while. I, I, I imagine you're happy and you support this. I think it is a good first step. I don't think it goes far enough, Mike. I mean, it's wonderful to have mandatory vaccination, for instance, on airplanes or on trains. And that's what the prime minister has called for. But we spend not much of our time on trains and airplanes. We spend our time generally in other places. And those two require mandatory vaccination. So I think this is a good start. It is by far the best in the world. Um, give you an example in california right now mandatory vaccination in all health facilities and all schools that's where california is at right in san francisco if you want to get into a restaurant a bar a nightclub you have to be vaccinated that's the sort of thing we need in canada we need to follow the california model brian Lilly, your thoughts i i I think that uh it, one, the Prime Minister's promise of mandatory vaccination for federal public servants is not actually mandatory vaccination for federal public servants. And he's trying to use this as a wedge issue, politicize vaccinations the way both the Democrats and the Republicans have in the United States to a, uh, a detrimental effect. It, it, it's really messed the, the, the entire rollout in the United States. Um, Prime Minister just admitted half an hour ago that it's not mandatory, that he's he's going to work with people but not punish them. So it, it's a bit of a non-starter for political reasons. But when you look at our vaccination rate across Canada, 82% of people 12 and up with one shot, and, and the second shot is coming up to 73% and growing, we're getting younger people vaccinated every day. We're on the right path. We don't need to take what the Prime Minister just a little while ago was calling divisive extreme measures. We don't need to do that in this country in order to reach uh, the level of vaccination that we need to protect society. What's a better way forward, in your opinion? In, in my opinion, it's uh, what I've been writing about in the pages of the Toronto Sun, and that is that you go into uh, neighborhoods with low vaccination uptake, with mobile clinics, you go into uh, ethnic and racial communities where there is vaccine hesitancy and Statistics Canada tells us that that is most prevalent among black Canadians, followed by uh, Latinos and then uh, Arab Canadians. And you go into those communities with community leaders 
who will talk to people often in their own mother tongue about why vaccines are safe and, and work through the hesitancy and increase. You go into low income neighborhoods where people either don't have access or don't feel like they have access with different ways of of reaching them. Recently here okay. in Toronto, there was one neighborhood, they did nine mobile clinics at the local grocery stores and they had great uptake. Those are things that work as opposed to just a, a fight about uh, a posturing that uh, one doctor last week said is about making upper and middle class people feel good, but not getting results. Amir Adaran, what do you say to that? I say Brian Lilly's politicizing it. I mean, what a hypocrite, Mr. Lilly. What a hypocrite you are. You just warned against politicizing, and every third word was about the government and the prime minister. And you know what else you did, Mr. Lilly? You made this a racial issue. I, I made it a racial issue. Black if, by... I can finish. if I can finish, sir. You made this about black people, about minorities. With all due respect, if we want to talk politics and race, Maxime Bernier is white. He's, he's the leader of the People's Party, and, and he is not black. Now, is he? Let's not be unscientific and ideological here. The fact of the matter is that the measures Mr. Lilly is calling for, like mobile clinics, have already been done. It's already happened. And that is partly why Canada has achieved the good vaccination rate. We now need to take the next step, which is mandating vaccination. I know Mr. Lilly doesn't like it, but Mr. Lilly has also been wrong about nearly everything in this pandemic. Okay, let me let me uh, let him respond, Brian Lilly. Okay, I was going to be polite to Professor Adaran, but he says, being his usual blowhard self, saying that I'm making it about race. I'm citing Statistics Canada data, Amir, and I'm sorry if that offends you, but that's the reality. Talk to public health officials, of which you proclaim to be one, and they will tell you that this is what is going on in the ground. And you say, I'm making it racial? We're debating the Prime Minister's proposal. So, of course, I mentioned the Prime Minister. You are in encouraging a policy that would actually violate the Charter and make it so that there is no medical procedure that government could not force upon people. Okay, Amir Adaran, what do you, Amir Adaran, Amir Adaran, what do you say to that? You're you're a professor of law as well as a professor of medicine. What about the legality and the constitutionality here? What the government is proposing? Well, Mr. Lilly doesn't understand the charter. Here is the fact: yes, it is constitutional to require vaccination. There is no case in Canada's history that has ever ruled to the contrary. And for him to say he knows it violates the charter is frankly rubbish. <laughs> With all due respect to him, Mr. Lilly's not a lawyer. I am a lawyer. I've litigated the charter. I've gone to court on it many times. I've been in the Supreme Court of Canada and the courts of half the provinces in this country. And you've I am saying, many times. And many others are saying, if I could finish, sir, I'm saying, and many others are saying, that mandatory vaccination is legal. It would have to be done with exceptions for those having a medical disability or a religious objection. We must continue to allow those people to decline vaccination. Fair enough. That is what our law requires. 
But to say that a mandatory policy of the nature that the federal government, in its limited small way, has announced, violates the Charter, is with the greatest of respect. Speculation about law from a non-lawyer. Brian Lilly, your response, and we'll take a quick break here. Your thoughts? My response, again, is that Amir Adaran likes to pretend he's a, uh, an expert in everything. That is far from the case. Many lawyers actually agree with me, Amir Adaran. Many lawyers Name one. Said that this Name, one sir. Name one. Name one. Name one law professor who agrees with you. I don't have a list in front of me. I'll get you some. I know. You want to keep interrupting me? You want to keep interrupting me, you blowhard? Okay, okay, guys. Let's, you, let's try. You are someone who likes to say that you defend the charter, and what you're saying is the government can come and tell me what to do. It is a bully tactic that we don't need to use. What is your goal? Is it to just have government control people or to increase vaccination rates? Because if you want to increase vaccination rates, there are better ways than doing it. But you, sir, prefer the bully tactics because that's what you are. Okay, okay, let me, uh, Amir Adaran, I'll let you respond briefly to that, but I'll, I'll try to appeal to both of you guys. Let's try and keep it a little bit more civil here, but Amir Adaran, your response, and then we'll take a, a break and a few phone calls here, too. Your thoughts? Look, I'm not trying to bully anyone. I'm trying to save lives. And with respect to the charge by Mr. Lilly that I'm not an expert, my science degrees in health sciences are from Berkeley, Caltech, and a PhD from Oxford. And I'm also a lawyer who's been to the Supreme Court. So possibly, just possibly, I know what I'm speaking of. When Mr. Lilly doesn't have those qualifications, here's the fact. The one way you end this pandemic is through mass vaccination. And thank God we in Canada are quite a long way to that goal. But to get the last mile, to get that last little bit, we are going to have to use measures that nudge people who are okay. reluctant in the direction of vaccination. That's okay. a fact. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking mandatory vaccinations in Canada with my guest, Amir Adaran, University of Ottawa, Brian Lilly, the Toronto Sun. The phone lines are open, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free in your cell. Let's go to Dev calling from the island. Hey, Dev. Oh, hi. Um, look, I'm double vaccinated. My entire family is double vaccinated. We believe in, 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 in being vaccinated. But I have intelligent, articulate, educated friends who are very, very leery of getting vaccinated. And, I, and the reason I want to say that is you yourself, Mike, got those two AstraZenecas. And then they said, well, that's not good enough. Did they not? Did you, was that not out there, right? So, you know, if, if you want to look at what's happening... There's a deep mistrust of, 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 of government and all these flip-flops. So if we want to get people vaccinated, why don't we do it the way Mr. Lilly is saying? I don't believe in the heavy hammer. Because I'll tell you, again, we have some very articulate, intelligent, educated friends. They are refusing okay. to get vaccinated. Okay, thanks for the call, Dev. Uh, Amir Adaran, what do you say to him? Well, I would point it out. The things Mr. Lilly is calling for have already been tried. He's calling in the future to do what we have done in the past. And that's not a plan at all. He wants to have mobile vaccine clinics. Tried that, been there. He wants to reach out in non-English languages to immigrant communities. Tried that, been there. We have to do something new. And the evidence from other countries, other places, is that a vaccine mandate does get you the last mile. So, for instance, in France... 
a vaccine mandate was brought in, a vaccine passport was brought in, and in the first 24 hours, one million people registered to be vaccinated. Okay, That's let me go. Huge. Let me go to Brian Lilly. Brian, your thoughts. Well, what Amir is talking about is replicating what countries who are behind us, well behind us in vaccination rates, have done. Uh, what I'm talking about is continuing things. Yeah, have mobile vaccine clinics been done? Yes. And they've worked and they continue to work. But if you're going into neighborhoods where people are not as well connected as um, Amir Adaran and myself are, or you are, Mike, then... Uh, you're going to have to go in time and again. And these mobile clinics, I mean, I'm much closer to this on the ground than than Mr. Adaran is because I'm covering it on a daily basis. These clinics continue to work. These policies continue to work. And he's saying, let's follow a country like France that's well behind us. Okay, star 9898 is the number on your cell. Marie calling from Abbotsford. Hi, Marie. Hi, um, I am a nurse with, that works with um, Fraser Health. I just okay. finished managing um, a COVID vaccination center. I, I agree with Brian Lilly that um, there are more, more mobile clinics that we can try. There are other ways of reaching the community. There are other um, avenues to get people in, to get them vaccinated, to get into the schools in the next round. Like, there's a lot of things that we can do first. However... Um, I do sort of agree on the other side of the fence where, you know, we put it out there. We're like, come in and get your vaccine and people, how long are we going to leave people to wait before our hospitals are full again? So where's the balance there? There has to be a balance and a push from one end without taking away people's rights and also a push from the other end to say, let's get out in the community and try and reach as many people as possible still in the next couple of okay. months. Okay, thank you for the call. Amir Adaran, your thoughts on that? Look, here's, here's the fact that Mr. Lilly scientifically is not portraying accurately. Canada has an overall high vaccination rate, but it also has a growing pandemic in young people. In fact, young people are most of the cases now. Why? Because in the age group of 18 to 29, the vaccination rate is not even 40%. We're not to 40% yet. And we have schools coming back. We have universities coming back. We have colleges coming back. That's where we are going to see an explosion. Because a 40% vaccination rate in that age group isn't going to do it. We right. need mandatory vaccination to access facilities so that these young people who aren't hesitant because they don't know English or because they're black, as Mr. Lilly would like to pretend, they're, getting, they're not getting vaccinated because like every young person, they think nothing's going to get them. They think they're, they're going to live forever. We have to do something there or we will okay. see our hospitals buried, Brian, absolutely buried again. Brian Lilly, we just got a minute left here, guys. Go ahead, Brian. Well, I'm just going to you know push back on Amir Adaran. Uh, I've been suggesting things that have been uh, put forward by Toronto's chief medical officer, by Ontario's chief medical officer of health as ideas that work. He says we're at a 40% vaccination rate in young people. In Ontario, 69.6% of people 12 to 17 have one dose, 56% have two. 18 to 29, it's 73% one dose, 60% with two. Do I need to go on? 
he doesn't know what he's talking about because he's pontificating without looking at real results. What I'm suggesting is working in Ontario. The facts back that up. Maybe everyone should uh, look to what Ontario is doing. Adrian Dix the other day saying his health region in British Columbia is over 90% vaccinated. Look at what's working in places and replicate that in places that are lower, like Atlantic Canada. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the turmoil in Afghanistan now, the fall of the government, the takeover by the Taliban. Taliban fighters have now swept into the capital of Kabul. The president has fled. We've seen heartbreaking scenes at the Kabul airport as Afghanis desperately try to flee, reminiscent of the fall of Saigon nearly 50 years ago. For Canada, it's a terrible outcome after the expense of so much Canadian blood and treasure in Afghanistan. More more than 40,000 Canadians served there. 158 were killed. Thousands more suffered physical and psychological wounds that have led to additional deaths by suicide of Canadian veterans. The amount of money spent by Canada in Afghanistan, hundreds of millions of dollars. Let's discuss now what can be done about this in the aftermath. Have a listen to the Prime Minister here, Justin Trudeau, saying Canada is still committed to Afghanistan. Have a listen. Our commitment to the people of Afghanistan, including women and girls and the LGBTQ2 communities, remains unwavering. And we will honour the sacrifices of Canadians, our armed forces, diplomats, journalists and civil society, have made over the past years. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, retired Canadian Forces Major Quentin Innes. He spent many years in Afghanistan and Kandahar and Kabul between 2006 and 2014. He's recently been working with a network of military veterans trying to convince Ottawa to mount a rescue operation for Afghans that helped Canadians on the ground there, notably the interpreters on the ground. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Quentin, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks very much, Mike. Uh, It's really good to be here. Good to hear you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. As you watch these uh, incredible scenes unfolding in Afghanistan, where you served for many years, and we saw just incredible videos at the Kabul airport. I just watched one of a U.S. military uh, aircraft taxiing down the runway with like hundreds of people running beside it and after it, just desperate to get out of the country. What, what goes through your mind as you watch what's happening there on the ground now? What goes through my mind is that this is largely this was largely avoidable. And if uh, governments and leaders had chosen to act a month ago, uh, we wouldn't be seeing these signs. Yeah, what should have been done? Well, about a month ago, uh, a group of us went to the Canadian government and said, listen, this, uh, this is about to go bad and you need to do something about it. A uh, letter was sent to the Prime Minister's office. The Prime Minister's office forwarded that letter to the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Mark Garneau, and charged him with putting this together. The letter was quite specific and it said detailed the things that needed to be done and it included the possibility that this may need to be conducted as a non-combatant evacuation operation and a non-combatant evacuation operation is something that the military does under the direction of global affairs we've done it before we practice it and we know how to do it Um, the minister has announced a program to bring people in on the 23rd of july by the 27th of july the military had positioned aircraft in the gulf but the first airplane didn't come out until the 4th of August. And the reason that first airplane did not come out until the 4th of August is because Global Affairs Canada and IRCC, Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, under the direction 
under the leadership of their respective ministers, chose to impose a very bureaucratic process on the Afghans that were trying to get out. There's an organization in Canada that for the last five years has been collecting information on people who need to get out of Afghanistan. They had four, 544 files. Each of those files represents a family between two and eight people. Those people were already vetted, already known to us. IRCC mm. ignored those files and instead imposed their own bureaucratic response on it, which meant that in the 19 days between the announcement and the time the first airplane landed in Toronto, IRCC was only able to get 36 people on that plane. Okay, it's a, it's a tragic situation, and I think Canada has a moral obligation to help those people who helped us on the ground in Afghanistan at great personal peril, the people I'm sure you work closely with, Quentin. For people who have not had your experience on the ground there, can you explain why, why should Canadians care about these interpreters, about these civilians in Afghanistan who helped us on the ground there, and why should we be working to try and get them to Canada? Well, I think, as you said, it's a moral obligation, Mike. I think these yeah. people put their lives on the line. And they don't only put their own lives on the line, they put their families' lives on the line. So I've just received reports from Kabul of one of the interpreters who's had two of his family members shot by the Taliban in the last two days. Uh, another of my, uh, my contacts in Afghanistan is going underground now. Uh, he's hiding himself to stay away from his family because he is the guy who is going to bring danger to his family. So the problem that we face is not just that the people who helped us out who are absolutely essential to our mission. I mean, these interpreters uh, not only helped us, but they saved our lives in some, some instances. Um, not only they are in, are in danger, but their families are in danger. And this is what happens when an organization like the Taliban takes over. They, they embark on a, an orgy of revenge, uh, and they just kill whoever they can get their hands on. Speaking to retired Canadian Forces Major Quentin Innes, 10 years in Afghanistan, uh, Quentin, what can you can you sort of describe what the situation is, is is likely like now on the ground? Let's say in Kabul, like what is the what is the life like there right now? I mean, I know you've got your kind of finger on the pulse here, watching what is going on. Uh, what is it like there right now? So the, the life of the average Afghan there, the interpreters that are trying to to, to get back into or sorry get out of Afghanistan, get to Canada, not very good. Kabul's got about five, maybe eight hours of power per day. Internet connection is intermittent. Uh, food and water is starting to run out. Uh, the Af Afghani, the Afghan currency, has devalued against the U.S. dollar. So when I was in Afghanistan, it was 50 Afghani to the U.S. dollar. It's now 100. Uh, people can't get to bank machines without paying bribes. So there are, there are guards sitting on bank machines and saying, yeah, if you want to take money out, you're going to have to give me some bribes. Um, the panic that, that was created, uh, possibly partially by Prime Minister Trudeau's announcement that he was going to take 20,000 Afghans, uh, the stampede that was created at the airport resulted in gridlock uh, in the city of Kabul, and it became impossible to move around. Okay, we just heard that clip of Justin Trudeau saying Canada is committed to Afghanistan and the people who assisted us on the ground there. You mentioned that there's been a commitment from Canada to take in 20,000 people. But now we're into an election campaign, right, that a lot of people have said is unnecessary power grab by Trudeau here. What, what do you think uh, is the impact of that, of the, the timing of this election campaign right now at such a, a critical time to help our allies there in Afghanistan? 
Well, I think the timing is extremely unfortunate. I mean, even if the Afghan situation was not going on, I think this is a bad, a bad time to have an election. It's a bad idea. What turns it from a bad idea to an immoral idea is what's going on in Afghanistan. We need those three ministers focused on their duties as minister. We need the prime minister focused on his duty as the prime minister to coordinate synchronized deconflict between three ministries. I mean, whenever more than one ministry is involved in a project, the responsibility falls on Privy Council office and the prime minister's office to coordinate those activities. So in the absence of the prime minister and the minister, they're out campaigning now. The responsibility now falls on the chief clerk or the clerk of the Privy Council. And she needs to get a hold of the deputy ministers of those three departments and get them singing off the same sheet of music. Okay, what is the situation right now in terms of Canada's efforts to get to get people out? And do you think that there's still a chance that we we can get people safely out of there? We can get people out of there if we get out of our own way. We need to stop with the bureaucracy. We know what the people or which people we want to bring out of there. And we need to put D&D in charge of the list of who gets on that airplane. So Global Affairs and uh, IRCC, to put it politely, have culminated to put it a bit more bluntly, they've failed. Um, so what we need to do is develop a list of who gets on those airplanes. We need to contact those people, send them an email, send them a text message that says, be at this location at this time, and we will get you on an airplane. But what we can't do is we can't have IRCC sending emails out to interpreters and saying, hey, uh, we're not sending any more airplanes to Afghanistan, so uh, if you can get yourself out of Afghanistan, you can still apply, uh, you know, so long and thanks for all the fish. I mean, it, a complete brush off. And this is causing consternation among the interpreters. It's leading to the impression that we are abandoning them. And uh, it's not really helpful when the prime minister gets up this, you know, this morning and says to Mercedes Stevenson, yeah, I'm going to send planes back in to get those interpreters. It's a great idea and it's laudable. But if we don't know who we're pulling out because GAC and IRCC can't get together and develop a list of who we're pulling out, not terribly helpful. Quentin, thank you for your insight today and your continuing work to help the people who helped us on the ground in Afghanistan. Appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you for your time.